Good morning. Welcome to Village Bible Church. I'm Pastor Ron, one of the pastors here, and looking forward to diving into God's Word. And um, if you don't mind, though, I'll be drinking tea throughout to try to keep my throat open and to try to be able to talk for the next two hours. Just kidding. 45 minutes. (laughs) No one even caught that. So, yeah, let's come back together and... I want to start by just um, sharing a little bit uh, about the weekend. Um, Thank you. Thank you for coming to pray. Um, Many of you came, and we had all the way from some of our younger kids and youth and young adults, you guys showed up and led the way, and everyone in the church just showed up. And it was an amazing time of trusting God for prayer. Toward the end of it, I just walked around and looked at all the the posters that people had written on different requests. And my heart as as the as the pastor here was was warmed and glad because there is nothing like prayer and nothing like coming to God to give our needs to him, to give our requests to him, just pour out our heart to him. There's nothing like that to set the stage for this coming year. So thank you for that. It, it was an amazing time. The, the, I think I led about four hours of it, and different leaders led different parts of it. But you could just, it's hard to put into words, but you could sense God's presence as his people prayed. And it was a, a beautiful thing. So thank you all that did, um, led those times, all the people that did music at those times, um, the people that came in the middle of the night to pray. You guys are awesome. Um, but... Thank you. I want to start this morning with a question, though. Why did we start our year in prayer? Why why pray? No better way to start it, yeah? Makes God the forefront of everything we do, yeah, Renee? Reconnect with God, that's a great time to do that at the beginning of the year. Gives us hope for a better year. Good. So, so dig down to the why of all these things. Why not, why not come together and pray to the elders? The elders are like, oh no, that's heresy right there. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> why, why not? Okay. So we know from scripture it should be our Father in heaven. Absolutely. Amen. Why else? God answers prayer. Are you saying that we... Yes, we're saying <laughs> That's what I wanted to dig down to today. Um, and that's not the only reason we pray, but we know that God answers prayer and we don't pray to other people because people aren't able to answer prayer in the same way. Okay, yeah, maybe we can help someone out from time to time, but that we, we pray to God because He is God and he is able and he, he desires to answer our prayer. Now, again, there's a whole lot of reverent reasons and, and worship reasons. And we're going to delve into that later this year. And so I understand that. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. But today I want to focus on one of the reasons we pray to God is because he is the one that can answer prayer. And he can do that because he is all powerful and because he desires to answer our prayer. This morning as we, we talk, we're going to talk a little bit about promises. 
And, and part of this with going to God in prayer is we also know that God is a God who keeps his promises. We sang a lot of songs this morning about the faithfulness of God, right? He is faithful, which means he will never let us down. He will do what he has said he will do. But when you compare that with people, we don't always do that, right? Sometimes we lack the ability. If we're honest, sometimes we lack the desire. Uh, I know I promised that, but I'm tired today. I, I, I don't think I feel like doing that today. Parents, you know how it is, because sometimes we don't even make promises to our kids. We just said, oh, maybe we'll do that today. And in their minds, that's a promise. It's going to happen, and don't you dare let me down. And so I know that that can happen. It, not that it's ever happened in my home. And then we don't do it because of sometimes lack of desire, sometimes lack of ability. I think there's, so, so kids, or, or we don't have kids in here right now, but junior hires, we have you in here right now. When you really want to tell someone that your promise is good, what do you do? Pinky swear, right? Or if we can't say that, pinky promise, um, whatever it is in your, your family. Why do we do that? A sign of our commitment, right? So what are we saying when we don't do that? It's not going to happen, right? I'm not as serious. Okay, now I'm telling the truth. Now I'm serious. Now I'm going to keep my promise. So, so all of that in the background, as we come to today's text, we're going to deal with man's promises and God's promises. And my cough. Um, man's promises and God's promises. And we know that man doesn't always keep their promises. And so we pinky promise or we pinky swear. But this morning, my hope is that we come away from the text realizing God always keeps his promises. And he is the one we can always go to. And no matter what situation we are facing, he is the faithful one that has the ability and the will to act. And so we can trust him. We can have hope in him. We can rest in him and have peace. And all that's going to come out of Acts and the story of Paul that we have today. So turn with me to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. And we're going to be looking at 12 through 35 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black Bible right under one of the seats right around you. And if you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that home as our gift to you. Or you can look up in your app in in Acts 23. 12 through 35. And just, we've, it's been a few weeks since we've been in, in Acts because we had Christmas and those things. So I just want to catch us up on where we, we are. Paul has gone to Jerusalem, right? And, and Paul is a servant of Christ and his desire is to share the gospel with the world, to see as many people come to Christ as possible. And he goes to Jerusalem and there's this contingent of guys that, that rise up that hate him and hate what he's doing. And so they almost kill him in the temple. And they have these false accusations. You tried to be, bring Gentiles where you're not supposed to. A mob came. And then God in his providence used the stinking Romans to come and rescue him. Remember that? And so they come and rescue him. They pull him out. And then um, the last time we were in Acts, we saw that the, the Roman um, tribune, the head guy of the garrison there, he calls together a council saying, what is going on? Why do you guys hate Paul so much? And, and some of them start making accusations again. It's all about 
really he's blaspheming or really he, they, he's not following our laws. And then things get worked up again when Paul talks and he's almost killed again. And the Romans come in again and save him and bring him to the barracks. Tribunes probably get a little tired of this. I have to keep having to save this guy's life, but I can't figure out what he's done wrong. And so that's where we left it. And I want to read the end of, of last, the, the last passage. So we're going to jump back to verse 10. Because that is where the promise of God is made to Paul. And then today's passage is that promise being tested. And so back to verse 10, it says, And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, not an exaggeration, really was afraid that Paul was going to die here, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him, stood by Paul and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so God in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the trouble, in the middle of his life at risk shows up and says, Paul, take courage. It's going to be fine because I promise you just as you've declared the gospel in Jerusalem, you will declare it in Rome. And Rome's a journey. And and we're going to, in the next few chapters, we're going to see that journey. But God has said, you're not going to die here. You're going to Rome. And so now the question is, does God keep his word? Is God going to follow through on what he promised Paul? And today's text, right from the start, that promise is questioned, or that promise, rather, is challenged. It's threatened. And so today, the summary of the text is, God's promise to have Paul share the gospel in Rome was tested by man's promise to kill him. And God wins. And so point number one in your notes, and we're just going to follow the story through. God's promise is threatened by crazy men with a crazy oath. God's promise is threatened by crazy men with a crazy oath. Now, some of you are already thinking, how can God's promise be threatened? You're right. But the appearance is people tried. I'm not saying that it was really threatened. People tried. And so we come to verse 12. When it was day, so remember, Paul's been taken away. Paul now has had God make the promise. And the very next verse, when it was day, so this is the morning after God made the promise to Paul that he won't be killed. He's being sent to Rome and he's going to share the gospel there. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. How's that going to work out? And so get the picture here. And we're going to find out it's 40 of them at least. 40 guys come together and say, we hate this guy. We hate his message. We hate the message of Jesus Christ. And so we are going to take care of this. And they make this oath. We are not going to eat. We are not going to drink until we've killed him. And so that's going to be a long time without food or drink if God keeps his promise. But we'll see. That, that's, the, that's the threat here. The wording here, by the way, for the oath, it's may God curse us if we don't follow through on this. It's, it's, a, it's a very strong word for this oath. It isn't just like, ah, what do we do today? Let's kill Paul. This is an oath that, that they are calling down the curses of who they 
see as God if they don't do it. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders. So these are the the ruling party of the Jews who also hate Paul and are trying to get rid of him because he's proclaiming Christ and Christ resurrected. And they go to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, if, if you come to one of the pastors here or the elders here, and you come and say, you know what, I've made an oath. I am not going to eat or drink until I kill John. Hi, John. Watch your back. Just say it. Oh, two, two Johns are sitting next to each other, pointing at each other. What should our response be as elders and leaders? Excuse me? Don't do this. This is sin. This is wrong. We don't, in our, in our core value of community, killing is not one of the parts. And I know I'm, I'm, making, I'm making light of it because for me, reading these verses, there's an absurdity here that Luke is bringing out. And so they go to the elders, they go to the chief priest, said, we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath, taste no food till we've killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, and they have a plan, Give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And so the plan is this. Remember, Paul's been taken up to the barracks, fortress of Antonia, right next to the Temple Mount. And he's in Roman custody. But the Sanhedrin where they met, where Paul was already examined once, um, and they want him to come. And they're like, you know, ask for more details so you can make a decision. And so that's probably a quarter mile away. And if you've been to, to the old city of Jerusalem, it's these narrow walkways, narrow alleys, buildings on both sides, doors, little alcoves, easy to hide people. They come out, Paul goes by, stab them and jump back in, which is, which is what their assassins did. And what's interesting is we don't see the elders of the chief priests countering it. In fact, from the rest of the story, it looks like they say, good idea. Let's do that. Because the plot continues. And that is the plan. And so get the picture here. These 40 men are willing to make an oath to not eat or drink, to kill this one man. So the odds are already stacked against him because he's preaching Christ crucified and resurrected. Because he's preaching a forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. But it threatened all of their power. It threatened everything they had taught. It threatened people coming to make sacrifices and still needing these priests. It threatened their status. Part of the absurdity here is the Romans were a well-trained army. If the Romans are escorting Paul, this is a a stupid plan. I, I don't know else to say that the Romans are going to kill people here if this happens. But they are so committed to their hatred. They are so committed to the evil that God is in their hearts, to the way they have twisted the truth, that they can't see truth anymore. And that hatred is running its course. So many times, if we look at our lives And this is something I think it's easier to look back on rather than currently because we we don't have eyes to see where we're at currently. 
But if we look back on times in our life where we have been following sin, where we've been following our own way, doing things we know we shouldn't, it is so easy to be deluded into thinking we're right and, and to be blind to what we're doing. Usually it takes some sort of circumstance or a brother or sister in Christ to wake us up because evil is delusional and irrational. It gets us to do crazy things and convince ourselves we're right to do them, usually to get what we want. And so part of the lesson here is, is we need to be, be watching the, their failure, what they did, and saying, Lord, I could, I could do the same thing so easily. And so always checking Scripture, always checking other believers. Check my, my attitude. Check where I'm going. Sin is irrational. And so that's the first phase of our story. They made a promise, a crazy oath, that they would attempt to stop God's promise. If we had to narrow it down, if we had to summarize it, that's what they're doing, right? We are going to stop God's promise. They don't know God's promise, but they are going to stop God's work because they don't like the message and they want something different. And we can look at this and it's silly and it's crazy and it's irrational, but sometimes we do the same thing with our decisions, don't we? And we make decisions based on trying to get what we want rather than asking what God wants, what his plan is. And sometimes, and I know this has been true of me, sometimes I get frustrated with God's plans because obviously there's a better way. If he would just listen to me and maybe it would be less painful. But we do that. And these men just did it in a crazy way. So God's promise is threatened by crazy men with a crazy oath. And what I want us to think about on point number one is what are circumstances you're struggling with? What are some circumstances that seem difficult to you? Imagine Paul. Now, now he doesn't know about this yet. He's going to find out about it in the next set of verses. But imagine Paul with this promise of God But yet, every time he goes out of the barracks, someone tries to kill him. At some point, you've got to wonder, is God going to keep his promises? The circumstances seem so overwhelming and so dark. And so I want us to think through on this first point, what are circumstances I'm struggling with? Where I'm only seeing the people trying to kill me, so to speak, or the, the difficulty, and I'm not seeing God's promise. You know, maybe these are are ways that we aren't consciously realizing it, but we are thinking that these things are threatening God's plan for us. Maybe it's income struggles. Maybe it's loss of work. Maybe it's that we thought we married the perfect spouse and then we found out differently. Or maybe they found out differently. Maybe it's issues of infertility and the deep pain and struggle with that. Maybe it's health issues. And and all of these things are, God, this isn't the life I planned. It's not the life I wanted. You can do better. And all along, we now are taking our circumstances and forming our opinions rather than seeing it through the lens of God's promises and his plan. Might God be doing something we don't realize he's doing? 
Might God be working for his glory and our good? And we know that he has promised he will. And so we want to be careful to think of the two. And so hold on to that as we look at the next two points. What circumstances are troubling us? Are they stopping God's plan or are they stopping our plan? So then we go on to the next step because the, the, the author here, Luke, has set up, so which person's promise is going to win? God made a promise to Paul. Forty men made a promise on their life to kill him. So we have a conflict here, and we come to the next verse, verse 16. And point number one was God's promise is threatened. Point number two is God's promise is preserved. God's promise is preserved through unlikely people and events. And so by, by preserved, I mean God doesn't allow it to, be, to fail. He doesn't allow it to stop. He doesn't allow circumstances to end his promise. He uses an unlikely chain of people, an unlikely chain of events, to let the Roman official know what was going on and preserve his plan. And that's how God works. He uses the most unlikely ways because then we can't take credit for it. He gets the glory. And, it, and it's sort of fun to watch God work in that way anyway. So and this is sort of fun here. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So right there, there's a lot of questions. We didn't know Paul had a sister in Jerusalem. We don't know that he's Uncle Paul. And, and, and part of that is probably his sister and nephew. They probably aren't believers. But through this story, looks like they have enough respect and enough relationship that there, there's still um, some respect going on there, especially with the nephew. But it's, it's sort of, how does Paul's sister's son hear about the ambush? And from the text, we're going to find out he's probably a little boy. And so God miraculously somehow has this little boy with big ears listening at the right time, hearing about this ambush. He's like, that's Uncle Paul they're trying to kill. And then this little boy has enough courage to go ask to see Paul, to ask the Roman officials if he can visit and to let Paul know. This is, this guy's awesome. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, family could visit, usually in, in house arrest or in Roman, in, in, for a Roman citizen under arrest. And so that, that's not entirely out of the, the, the blue, but the fact that this little boy took the initiative to do it. 17. Paul then calls one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. And so we see also Paul has a good relationship with the, the centurion. He, this is, They've saved him a couple times, but they're realizing this man has done nothing wrong. So 18, and we get this just real fast. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. 19, the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And so these, these sentences are coming fast and quick. And the idea is, the little boy comes, tells Paul what's going on. Paul calls one of the Roman guards, the centurion that's, that's leading that area, and says, this young man has something to tell the tribune. The centurion says yes. That blows my mind right there. So the centurion takes this little boy to the tribune 
and says, this little boy has something to tell you. And the tribune says, okay. I mean, this is crazy. I, I want you to understand how amazing this is. And so the tribune listened and wanted to hear. Now, again, whether that's because of a good relationship with Paul or whether it's just supernatural, it is God keeping his word. It is God keeping his promises in unexpected, unlikely ways. And in verse 19, the, the picture, and this is why we think it's a young boy, it, the wording there is like he took him by the hand and led him off to the side, which you wouldn't do with an older boy or a man. And, and he, he leads him off to the side, and you get this picture that he kneels down and says, okay, what do you want to tell me? Now, a Roman tribune is not the most fatherly of guys usually. Maybe to the 200 or actually a 1,000 soldiers under his command here that he can command to kill people, but this is a rough guy, and he listens to this little boy. In verse 20, the boy tells the plot. And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, which is how we know the leaders, by the way, agreed to it and were part of it. He tells us that. The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. This, this young man's a he's brave. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. And so this boy comes, and time is of the essence, because this is going down the next day probably. You have some time that's gone by here. But this is going to go down the next day. They are already ready and waiting. They're just waiting for the tribune to say, okay, let's send Paul down, and they're going to off him. And their problems will be over in their mind. Now, the tribune's got to be hearing this and thinking, this little boy's nuts. But instead, he, he listens and he acts on it. 22, so the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now, Luke, in, in great writing, we don't know if that means he's going to act on it or not going to act on it. Does he believe him or does he not believe him? Is he part of the plot? Is he not part of the plot? And we're going to find out the answer to that in a moment. But the, the answer is going to be that he wants to wisely respond. And if the little boy goes telling other people that the tribune knows, it spoils any element of surprise that he has. And so, so the story progresses in the most unlikely of ways I would argue miracle after miracle after miracle of God keeping his word. Because God will always keep his word because God is always faithful. And if there's anything we get out of the text today, it's that God will always keep his word. He will keep his promises because he is always faithful. So we can trust him. God is at work whether we see it or not with pieces we might not even know he has in place. And God is working in my situations. He is working in your situations to use those for his glory, to use those for our ultimate good in ways that we don't have a clue. So don't despair. Don't lose heart. Trust God. I, I, 
I know my personality, if I don't see it and understand it, it's hard for me to trust it. And I don't think I'm the only one. But God says, trust me because you know who I am, even if you don't know how I'm working, even if you can't see it, even if it hurts right now, even if it's dark right now, trust me and watch me work. And point number two, God's promises preserved through unlikely people and events. I see God at work in unlikely ways behind the scenes, but keeping his word. Then we get to the final section, 23 through 35. So not only was God's promise threatened and preserved, now God's promise is advanced in huge unexpected ways. God's promise is advanced in huge unexpected ways. So let's listen to what goes on with the rest of the story. Verse 23. Then he called in the tribune, the guy in charge, he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So he responds. He responds immediately. And he responds in a huge, overwhelming way. Also, In verse 24, Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. We'll, we'll read the letter in just a moment. So, so here's what happens. He hears about this and he says, you know what? I'm going to protect Paul. 40 men. Let's put 470 men in God's, in, in Paul's protection detail. Overkill? Maybe. What? It was a statement. Yeah, it was. Now, now some of this too is the tribune's watching out for himself. If another riot happens, that's on him and he gets in trouble. If Paul gets killed, then the Romans lose their, uh, lose their um, reputation. If any of his men get killed, that's a problem. And so he gives this excessive show of force because he is going to protect his own reputation and protect Paul at all costs. And here again, God is using an unexpected source to accomplish his purposes. I love it when I hear stories of God using people that don't know him to accomplish his purposes. He's sovereign over all. God is going to do what God is going to do in love for us and in his righteousness. And here God is keeping his word. So we get to 26 in this letter to the governor. Now, Felix, by the way, um, Felix is the governor that is the governor over the whole region. And actually, before we read the letter, let me, let's look at him for a minute. Third hour of the night, nine in the evening is when the tribune is going to send out this force under cover of darkness. And that gives them enough time to get far enough away. And, and, but Felix was a governor that used to be a slave and he was a freedman. He was one of the first freedmen to become a governor. And he had connections through his brother and some other people. But the guy he took the job over for, was Pontius Pilate. And so get the links there, Pontius Pilate, who who oversaw Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Felix took over for him. Felix did not have a good reputation, but God was still using him to keep his word. Roman historian Tacitus sums up Felix's leadership with this remark, practicing every kind of cruelty and lust 
he wielded royal power with the instincts of a slave because he was a slave and he never lost some of that brutality and some of what was going on with that. Another, um, Josephus writes this about the end of Felix's um, time. He was ousted from his office by the emperor Nero in AD 59 after his inept handling of an uprising in the city of Caesarea. A dispute had arisen between the Jewish population of the city and the Syrian inhabitants' citizenship status in the city. The conflict led to rioting and street fighting. On the day the Jews were victorious, Felix came into the marketplace and ordered them with threats to to retire, to leave. When they refused, he sent his soldiers against them and killed a large number and then promptly plundered their property. All of that story happened while Paul was in Roman custody in Caesarea. So this is all happening. This is the guy God sends Paul to? That God has a plan. And we're going to see that God uses this to advance his plan. And so we come to the, the letter. Claudius Lysias, the name of the tribune. To his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. Pretty standard opening to a letter. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned he was a Roman citizen. Eh, making himself look good. Those of you that have been with us in Acts, we know that he actually took him and they put him over a stone ready to beat him before Paul said, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And then they were like, oh, no, what are we going to do? So now he's, he's like, oh, I knew the whole time. And that's why I rescued him. See, aren't I a great tribune? And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused when it was about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. We have to understand the, the, the situation with the Romans and the Jews. The Jewish leaders all handled the religious side of Judaism and, and the law and whether people were following the, the temple rules and things like that. The Romans were enforcing Roman law. And so to be guilty of execution, you had to do something that was in violation of Roman law where the penalty was death. And so the tribune is telling Felix, okay, they have a dispute about their law. He really doesn't understand it yet, but he's done nothing that requires death. I I still don't get it. And when it was disclosed, verse 30, and when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. This was a standard um, trial procedure or a standard legal procedure that he could kick the, kick the can down the road. He could pass the buck and say, you know what, I'm going to send him to the guy over me. And then probably after Paul was safely there, he went to the Jewish leaders and said, oh, you need to go to Caesarea and, and state your case in front of Felix. And so God uses this evil man to safely get Paul out of, out of Jerusalem to Caesarea where he would then be able to share the gospel again. It also is the next stop on the way to Rome because Caesarea is on the coast. I think I have a map because if we can use maps, why not? And so we have Jerusalem where Paul was. And Caesarea is up here. Caesarea is the functioning capital of the region. 
It is the seat of Roman government. Um, Herod the Great had built a palace there, which was now being used by the Romans as the seat of their government. And we're going to see in a minute a reference to Antipatris, which is there about halfway between. And that's the journey. They're going to go here, stay the night there, and then come up to Caesarea. Caesarea also was the largest seaport in the area. So if you were going to go to Rome, God's advancing his plan. God is making this happen. And so, um, so the soldiers in 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, the first stop. On the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. Out of danger from the, the Jews at this point, they're away from Jerusalem. So the horsemen take Paul on a quick journey up to Caesarea. The rest go back to Jerusalem to make sure when the Jews hear the news, there's not another riot, probably. 33, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. This is all normal legal proceedings. You send a letter with the accusations. It's a prisoner transfer. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. Um, Felix asked Paul, what province are you from? He's, He's checking jurisdiction here. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And um, Cilicia is is part of a region that was um, definitely under the authority of Felix. There may have been another sub-governor of sorts uh, over that, but Felix definitely had authority here. And so he says, okay, I'll hear the case. The Jews have to come tell me the case, but I'll hear the case. And he was guarded at Herod's praetorium. Just sort of fun. And in Herod's Praetorium, this is Herod's palace that Herod had built that the Romans, like I said, had taken over. And so if you look, this is the, the this is modern day Caesarea Maritima. And this is what has been uncovered. You see a beautiful amphitheater here. You see a hippodrome here where they did horse racing and other games. What you can't see is Herod the Great had built a whole breakwater out here and some over here first use of underwater cement, actually. And Herod the Great just built great things. And he had built a whole seaport here. And what you see out here, this was his palace. Because if you're going to make a palace, why not do an infinity pool and do it on the edge? In fact, this, (laughs) in case you're building a palace later, this was a pool. This is the Mediterranean Sea. It is beautiful. That pool, they, they really believed that he had taken some channels of fresh water in to where it was a freshwater pool. Mediterranean Sea, not freshwater. So this was amazing. In fact, the, the levels have come up a little bit to where now the, the water does come and fill that area. But So this was part of the palace, probably with, with columns and things around that. This was all part of the palace. And this little spot right here is what they've identified as the praetorium proper or probably where the troops were, probably where Paul was, was staying. He ended up staying there for two years. Now, on one hand, we can say, look at the view. He was imprisoned. He, he wasn't just allowed to go out and use the pool. Um, and, but at the same time, look at the view. <laughs> this was an amazing place for two years, but God brought Paul to the seat of Roman government in the area on his way 
to the seat of government in the known world. Because God is keeping his promises. He is keeping his word. We see 470 troops protecting Paul. And I wonder, did Paul chuckle a little bit? Did he, did he think in his head, you know, none of these are needed? Because I have God's promise, I could walk by myself and I'd be fine? I don't know. But Paul wasn't saved by the 470 men. Paul was saved by the mighty hand of God at work behind the scenes. As someone once said, one of Barton in, in his book said, we are utterly safe and invincible until God calls us home. Now, don't go jumping off a building with that statement or doing something crazy. Yes, we are utterly safe and invincible until God calls us home. But if you jump off a building, that might be when God's calling you home. The point is, God has a plan. God has a promise. God has a purpose for us. And until we have accomplished his purpose, until he calls us home, we can step out in boldness for him. And we see this incredible story of Paul's protection. Because God is keeping his word. God is setting up, sharing the gospel with Rome. And so we have the the promise threatened. We have the promise preserved where Paul's life is saved. But here, God now advances the promise and moves Paul closer to, to sharing the gospel there. What Satan intended to stop the gospel, God actually used to advance the gospel. And that's how God works. And that's the God we serve. What Satan intends for evil in your life, God is going to use to advance his purposes. And we just get to watch and participate and be part of it. But we get to see God's hand. How many of you have had situations that were really hard that you can look back on now and see God use that. Almost every hand. That's God keeping his word. That's God keeping his promises. See, this story is all all about God's promise and his faithfulness. All about advancing the gospel and that God's work advances no matter what. Man made a promise. We're going to kill Paul. But God's promise won. We can take that to the bank every time. And so I challenge you out of today's text, trust God's faithfulness. Even in situations that are hard, still step out for God, still keep walking with him, still keep pursuing him because he is at work. You may not see it because you're not God. I'm not God. But he is. And so trust him. Charles Spurgeon said, let us trust in God and be very courageous for the gospel. And the Lord himself will screen us from all harm. And the idea is this, if we can trust God, if he keeps his word and he wants us to share the gospel, then we can share the gospel without fear. And we can step out and do his work without fear. The memory verse I have in your notes isn't from Acts this time from Numbers 23, 19, to remind us of God's faithfulness, to remind us that God keeps his word. And as God is not a man that he should lie, 
nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? If God gives us instructions in his word and promises in his word, he will do it. And he doesn't have to pinky swear because his word is always good. And his word is always true. And his word is always reliable. On the first point, I ask you to think about some of the the trials in your life. Some of the hardships in your life. The circumstances that if we looked at them wrong, we could think of as threatening our plan for our life. Because we've seen the story of Paul, now look at those things and ask the question, how can they be used by God? How might God be furthering his purposes through this little tiny moment of time where I think things are going all wrong? Might God have a bigger view? Let's pray. Lord God, may we trust you. May we know that you keep your word and really know it and act on it to a point where we have peace, to a point where we have confidence. Lord, help us to be able to say, I don't know what's going on. And it seems dark right now, but I know my God. And I know he knows what is happening. I know he is working and I trust him fully. Lord, help us to see in Paul's example how you made a promise and the promise was threatened, but you came through. Help us to know that you are that same God and you are still, you still have the same character, you still have the same attributes and you still are going to keep your promises to us today. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that has never given their life to you, that has never trusted in you and your promises and your word, that today would be a day they ask more questions and find out who this Jesus person is and find out who this God is that never lets us down. Not in the ways we demand or expect, but in his perfect sovereign knowledge. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. And on behalf of this church, I say, Lord, we do trust you. And we give our lives to you. And we look forward to seeing how you work. In your precious name, amen.